Welcome to the Queer Arabs Podcast. This is Alia. And Ellie. And we are the Queer Arabs. I'm Saudi American and a lesbian. I'm bi-trans Lebanese and recording here in Houston and... and uh, in New York, right? Is that where you are right now? I'm in New York, yeah. And I'm queer, I'm queer cis, gay, half Lebanese myself. Yalla! Yalla! Fist bump! <laughs> fist bump that Lebanese! Fist bump. Arab fist bump. Um, so today we're talking with Tim Murphy, who's this amazing author. I read his recent book... Ellie will get her turn after me. I should have sent you guys too. That was stupid. No, it's all right. I Ellie will get her turn right after me. I I love the book so much. It's called Correspondence, and it was published this year, 2019. Tim, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for oh. having me. I love oh, that there is the Queer Arab podcast. That's awesome. So we Queer Arabs have to be visible and vocal, right? And we, we got to represent ourselves, right? Right, exactly, exactly. And we have to support our, sis- our sisters in Congress, too. Hell yeah. Well, I mean, only one is, it's a Rashida Tlaib is Arab. I mean, Il- Ilhan Omar isn't, but... I mean, she's a sister, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's a sister. Hell yeah, All she's right, one of our sisters, right. too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my name is Tim Murphy, and I'm a journalist, a longtime journalist and novelist that... Um, I've lived in uh, New York City most of my adult life, almost 30 years. I moved here in 91, a very different time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm originally from uh, the Boston area, and I definitely grew up, even though you wouldn't know it from my last name, which is on my father's side, Irish, I'm actually more Lebanese than Irish. And I grew up in the Boston area, and in that area, as in many parts of the U.S., there are, you know, these large, long-standing Lebanese communities who... Ellie, where did you grow up? I grew up in Houston, where there's a very oh, large Lebanese tons, population. tons, yeah. By the way, he looks the part, folks. You know, don't let the say, name fool you. Say what? Oh, I do? Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, you look that's Lebanese. Nice to hear. A lot of people are like, really, you are? You look totally Irish to me. I was like, look at my nose. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's being hot, half Saudi. People right, are like, it's all about the bridge, right? It's all about the bridge. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so I grew up in, you know, on totally. my mom's side, you know, my mom is all Lebanese and my grandfather came over. My grandmother was born here right after they came over. You know, I grew up in this community and it was very interesting because, you know, Boston's very Irish, very Yankee. Yeah. But um, there still was, you know, this large Arab community. And so, you know, I would, uh, you know, when I went to church with my, we were, Mar- we are Maronite Christians, you know, that's the, the Catholic sect of Lebanon. You know, I would go to uh, to church with my grandmother to the Maronite church. And uh, well, a lot of the mass actually was in Aramaic, you know, the ancient language that Christ supposedly spoke. But, mm-hmm. you know, she and the other old ladies would be speaking Arabic, and then there would be these fairs, like these mahajans, like the one that starts the book, um, full of Arab music and Arab food and dubki, the, the, the line dancing. And I just sort of took it for granted as a, as a kid, you know? I mean, I think we joked about the fact that these uh, these sort of more white Irish or whatever guys like my father marrying into the family and sort of being overwhelmed by like the amount of food and the amount of kissing and hugging and just the emotionality of it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, that's what with the book, with this book corresponded. So, you know, I've been a I've been a journalist for most of my time in New York, mostly focusing around HIV AIDS and LGBTQ issues. And my last novel, Christodora, which is the name of a really iconic building in, in the downtown Manhattan, you know, mostly revolved around the AIDS uh, crisis in New York and the impact that it has on one family over three generations. But I've always wanted to 
try to, you know, tell the story of like, you know, my family slash like the Lebanese or the Arabs in America. So that was one thing I really wanted to do with this. The more, I would say, the more kind of like the lighter and happier side of the book. And then my, you know, my other really longstanding obsession is the Iraq war. You know, I was among those who like protested it before we went in. But, you oh, know, yeah. I just can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so much good that did, right? I mean, I didn't think if most people really were that outraged, Bush wouldn't have been reelected in 2004. Uh-huh. But that's a whole, we can set that aside for a second. You know, I was just sort of obsessed with this idea that, like, this is, America is such a big and powerful country that most of us who live here, we live under this sort of dome, you know, in, in this bubble. And we don't really understand the effect of our actions in other parts of the world and how can completely end up destroying families, neighborhoods, countries that in many ways look like so much like ours, you know, like in in this instance, Iraq. I mean, we destroyed Iraq. You know, we absolutely destroyed it. Saddam was a monster, but daily life for most people people under Saddam was far more secure and happy than it was before we went in and took the, you know, ripped open that power vacuum, created chaos, created a power vacuum that spilled over into Syria and created ISIS and created the whole crisis of displacement that we've seen in that region. You know, I really tend toward the light and fun beach reading, as (laughs) you can see. But, you know, with this book, I was like, how would, because I'm so fascinated by how people move to the U.S. from all over the world. And you might come with, you know, this very intense sense of Arab identity or Asian identity, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But in a few generations, you're American. I yeah, wonder, it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long, right. And it, it doesn't take long to, e- to even sort of forget, you know, to even have an emotional tie to where you're from. So I wanted to write this novel. It was like this very long-standing Arab-American family, much like my own. And, you know, the daughter, the youngest daughter, Rita Corey, becomes a um, work. She's very ambitious, and she's very entitled and ambitious in a way that I think is very American in a, a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And she gets her dream, which is to be a foreign correspondent for a newspaper like the New York Times. She ends up covering the invasion of Iraq. And she becomes very close with her interpreter, a young man named Nabil Al-Jamaili, mm-hmm. who's from a, a very educated middle-class family, much like her own, you know, who he and his cousin Asma went to um, the University of Baghdad, widely considered the best university in Iraq. And it's about, the book is about what, happens to them both and their families in the ensuing years and it's a real it's interesting because it's a real 2000s book i think that's a decade that we haven't really unpacked yet because it's so recent you know yeah a lot happened in that in that decade and so most of the book takes place between 2002 and then the early months of the obama era and it was so interesting though because i started the book before the 2016 election but i wrote most of it after and it was very interesting, obviously, like many people, after the 2016 election, I had a lot of feelings, especially around issues of immigration and yeah. what what really makes America great, which I think is our diversity in this in this history of, of welcome. Absolutely. So it was interesting writing, with all those feelings, writing a book that actually ends about a decade from now, you know, like because I, I feel like I put a lot of my feelings into it sideways because as i'm sure you know alia you know we weren't I, mean, I don't think we were optimal in terms of our welcoming of you know asylum seekers even in the obama era but no definitely it's not. a far cry from now 
Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so it was interesting to write in our current moment about what we looked like a decade ago. Yeah. And I mean, it must have been really bittersweet writing about, like, for example, people took refuge in Syria in the book, and, you know, the characters didn't know what was to come. Yeah. When it comes to Syria. Um, and that must have been really interesting writing. Right, right, exactly. It, it gets really dark. Hindsight and all that. Yeah, exactly. When you're reading something in retrospect. Right, right. At the time, it was one of those, like, sort of functional dictatorships. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Not great, and certainly not a nirvana of human rights, freedoms, etc. cetera. Um, but, but not what it is now. I hope that, I mean, I don't want to give spoilers, but I hope that at least for some of the characters, because of the fact that they go to Damascus, mm-hmm. I think Damascus has remained relatively undestroyed, you know, because it was sort of under the iron bubble of Assad. Yeah, yeah. that's true. So, you know, I hope that, I hope uh, that they fare better than Iraqis, for example, who maybe fled to Aleppo or Homs. Yeah, other parts uh, of Syria, yeah. Right. Well, it's so interesting because I kind of, I considered like stretching the book into the current era. And then that was just, it was just too many years of narrative to, to cover, you know, like it felt like their stories would play out over the course of about like five or six years, you know? So it was really bittersweet writing it. I mean, knowing what was to come both here in the U.S. and in Syria, it was uh, really bittersweet. But I'm really curious, like I said, I'm half Lebanese and I've spent a lot of, I I go there a lot. I love it. Have you guys been? Next year. Well, Ellie went as a kid several times, but this will be her first time as Uh an adult, right? Yeah, I really want to go though. We're going to go soon. That's the plan. Oh my god, you guys, I'm so excited for you and I will hook you up with all my my queer friends there oh, because you yes, know there is be such amazing. A, there's uh, such a great queer community in Beirut. Oh, oh we that's know. awesome. Yeah, we've gotten to talk to a few people in Beirut, some queer folks. You had there. a lot of um like quote unquote actual Lebanese on the show. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked to, for example, uh Joseph Ayun, um Hadi Hadi Damian. Oh yeah, I know Hadi, yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah, we talked we to him. We organized the first. Oh, and Tarek Zaidan. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Tarek, who's the head of uh, Halem. Yeah. 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 I just had lunch with him in Beirut a few months ago. Oh, my God. Small world. Yeah. That's he's, so cool. he's a darling. He's so sweet. Hadi was was here last month, and we asked, well, whatever. I mean, this is boring, but uh, just the details <laughs> is that we tried one night in particular, we were really trying to connect, and I'm like, we're going here, and I'm texting him, and we just. Never did, and it was frustrating. But I'm sure we'll meet at some point. And yeah, it'll happen. Yeah, there's so I'll I'll hook you guys up. You know, I love it's so funny. I just did a reading in Provincetown Ooh. last week, yeah. and someone said I didn't read from the parts of the book that are like set in Beirut, but someone said later they were like, "Isn't Beirut a war zone?" Oh my god! Oh wow! And this is my favorite like disabusing people it's amazing to me that the country has been you know with the occasion with the exception of a few blips back in like 05 and 06 Mm -hmm. the the country has been you know not only stable i mean it's highly dysfunctional you know but the country's been not only stable but thriving in so many ways for 30 years it's one of the most sophisticated vibrant fascinating places in the middle east one of the few places where it is safe to travel and mm-hmm. people still, like, you know, stereotypes really stick. Yeah, they do. You know, because Beirut is still synonymous with 
chaos. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of times people just see the Middle East as this big lump or this monolith, and that's just not accurate. So many misconceptions out there. Yeah, I feel like people's image of the Middle East and Lebanon especially got locked in in the 80s because of the Civil War. Right. Well, you know what I think actually, like, quote-unquote, set back its image was that Anthony Bourdain happened to be Aww. filming a, a, a show on oh. the food scene in Beirut when the short war between Israel and Hezbollah broke out. Oh, I didn't see that. So many people saw that, and I think it sort of reinforced this idea that it's always chaos. Whereas, yeah. in fact, that, you know, thankfully, you know, alhamdulillah, that was a brief yeah. war. And I just think it's so funny because also, like, the whole part of southern Beirut, Dahyeh, that they that the Israelis leveled because it's the Shia, that's the Hezbollah stronghold. The whole neighborhood was rebuilt in a year. Whoa. Oh my God. Yeah, with money from Iran, you know, but I mean, okay. it's like you wouldn't even have known that it happened because mm -hmm. like, I mean, to me, it's just the region is such a, you know, there is a lot of violence and instability, but it's also just such a fascinatingly complex and kooky, crate. like people have so much more of a sense of humor and so much more of a sense of gallows humor and this sort of cynical, yeah. cynical and very cynical, you know, I think more people have just sort of a weary, like, cynicism about the U.S.'s role than yeah. this rageful, like, terroristic anger. I mean, that's not the main characterization. I, I think most people's orientation toward the U.S. is like, they're the 800-pound gorilla, and they can do whatever they want, and we just have to live with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, someone I'm thinking about is the character Nabil, and I feel like um, he conveyed that really well in the book Correspondence. Mm. Okay, so he was the interpreter for Rita in the book, and he was very matter-of-fact about the fact that the U.S. was going to invade Iraq. At the same time, he saw this as a very negative thing for their future. Oh, it's sort of being under the thumb of, like, America. Maybe um, something good will come of it. Yeah. Right. So he also, yeah, exactly. Like, he also thought... Okay, maybe something good will come of it. Being an interpreter is a way I can get paid more, a way I can uh, further my career. While you, you could tell there were these conflicting feelings within Nabil where he was like, okay, this is not good, but also it's going mm -hmm, to happen. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. is going to do what it wants. So I just thought you portrayed that feeling well and in a very human way where... It's none of these feelings are simple. They're all conflicting. Rolling with the geopolitical punches, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What I love about the region, and I, I can't say that I haven't, I mean, I spent a, 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 a lot, a fair amount of time in Lebanon, and I haven't really been elsewhere in, in the region, even though I want to. I mean, I really seriously looked into going into Iraq for this book. Oh, wow. And yeah. uh, several Iraqis were like, you know, and people close to the situation were like, no, that's not a good, you, you can't just random freelance journalist, you can't just plop down and yeah. walk around like, dun, 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 you know, uh -huh. even though I, I would, I mean, I've done that in so many countries and I, I would have done it in an instant because, you know, about a third of the book is set in Baghdad and I would never have written a whole novel set there without having been. But I figured that if I really mm -hmm. immersed myself in research and I interviewed a lot of people and I found some Iraqi readers, which I did, one of whom was amazing, and we became good friends, oh, wow. that I could pull off that section of the book, you know? Yeah. But I mean, for me, it's like, I don't really like 
I want to know how a place smells, you know, oh, uh-huh. to, I feel like you kind of can't know it unless you know, you know, like for me, part, you know, certain part, other parts of the world, they smell like diesel fuel, you know, uh-huh. like in a way so different from here that, you know, when I think of them, that's the first thing. So like, it really bothered me that like, I didn't know what it smelled like, what the air felt like, or what the yeah. dustiness really felt like when you always have this film this thin film of sand on you, you know? Thankfully, I had, through a friend, through my friend Mike, who's also Lebanese and his, and his boyfriend is Lebanese, uh, hooked, they hooked me up with a friend of theirs, this, this guy named Yasser Danun, who he lives here. Oh, awesome. And he left, he grew up in Baghdad in a very similar family, very middle-class family, mixed Sunni-Shia family. And he came here, you know, he left amid the, the, the chaos and he left in 2005 and he spent, he spent time in Damascus and mm-hmm. in the Gulf as well. And he came to New York in 2009 and I'm very grateful to him. You know, like I, I paid him, he didn't really need it. I mean, he didn't really need what little I could pay him, but uh-huh, yeah. it was really moving because he's very busy. So like he never had time to read the pages on his own. So finally I was like, yeah, sir, how about we just schedule times and I come to you and buy us dinner and like we read the pages together. Oh, I love that. So we did. And, you know, that was great because not only, um, you know, as you know, there are such distinctions in Arabic between the countries. There's lots of stuff that I know maybe knew how to say it in Lebanese uh and, and Levantine Arabic. I didn't. I didn't know in Iraqi. So he helped me with that. But he helped me with everything. Like, you know, I was also supposed to go to Damascus. I was in Beirut for a month in 2011 at the beginning of the year and I was I got my visa for Syria and I was so excited oh. to go to Damascus because everyone said it's so beautiful you you have to go and by the time I got to Beirut the conflict had started so yeah. I haven't been there yet either but Yasser would say to me like it smells like jasmine and it's not in the building smell like coffee like everywhere you go you smell coffee like and coffee. you know and that's just yeah. so invaluable and i definitely the story is i i had drafted the entire arc for the nabil's character before yasser and i even met but he did give give me so many details like that you know he's like oh the building's the old city they just they smell like coffee like almost coming out of the walls oh. I do hope to, I do hope to go because I hear that's such a beautiful city and now that you mention it aromas really give you kind of a feeling about a, sense a place. Of the place yeah and I think it's sort of like it just helps you know it in a more intimate way yeah definitely yeah. so I did my best with that part of the book and I also spent a lot of time earlier this year in trip in Tripoli Lebanon which is a much more you guys have to go when you go there you have to go even for a day ooh awesome yeah, and it's also like the you know the whole country is the size of Rhode Island, you know yeah, Rhode Island. Yeah, totally. So it's not you can go in everywhere in like a week, you know. Tripoli is a much Tripoli is really interesting, you know. Whereas Beirut is very um, there's a strong, strong Western influence, cosmopolitan. Tripoli is like a very poor Sunni enclave unto itself. Mm. So you're getting a much more kind of like unfiltered Middle Eastern experience, you know, so I felt like and you know, and I, I was there for a month. So, oh, cool. you know, there are aspects of life that are of life, Middle Eastern life that go across countries, you know, yeah. I guess you kind of saw the cohesion or the commonalities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or just something. I mean, I think, you know, one, one thing you really feel in Tripoli that you don't feel in Beirut is the gender segregation 
Like, oh, okay. You know, that's a moderate country as as Islam goes, but you know, women go to university and like they work and they drive, et cetera, et cetera. But men still, men with men still really dominate the public spaces. Yeah. So at, at night, you know, when you look into restaurants and cafes, very often it's like all men because the women are okay. just like home behind closed doors. You know. Yeah. I was in one restaurant in Tripoli, and I was sitting at the. T- I was eating alone, and I was eating fate actually. Which have you guys had that? Why does it sound familiar? I don't. I I've not... never had it. Okay. Fate is it plays a role in the book actually, if you oh. remember. Well, it's like a. It's usually eaten for breakfast in Lebanon. I, I think in in Syria as well. It's very. It's like a porridge that's made from like chickpeas and yogurt. And um, toasted, okay. uh, you know, fried pita and uh, toasted uh, pine nuts. And it is so, oh, it is so good. It's oh, the most hearty. Okay. I mean, yeah. I guess you could say that it's like Lebanese oatmeal or something. Yeah, okay. I know what you're uh, talking about now. I never really had that stuff growing up. I just, I don't think it was something my family ate at all. Or was it? Do you want to know something really interesting? Mine isn't either. It's not something that, like, in the whole, like, repertoire of stuff that we make and eat that okay. was ever on the radar. And I think maybe that's because, like, it wasn't uh, commonplace, like, in, in the mountains, you know, where my grandmother came from. It was, I, I don't know exactly. I don't know why it's not something that... Maybe it's just not common among, like, the ethnic slash religious divide like my family is christian so we re- maybe that's like a thing we just didn't have possibly i don't really i don't really know i just i don't really know i just know that um it's just so yummy and uh, so i was in this restaurant i'll have to try that it's so good it's very you can find recipes for it it's very f-a-t-t-e-h it's, it's very easy to make oh cool um so i was in this restaurant eating alone and, and there was this place that it was really like a breakfast type place like it closed at three so you know fate was a big thing and also the jasmas, you know, which is like um, mm-hmm. the scrambled eggs with like. Anyway, so I'm sitting there, and there was a, there was at the other end of the table. There was a couple, a man and a woman. The woman was in hijab, and mm-hmm. she was on my side of the table. And they had the salt and pepper. So I turned to her and I asked if she could pass the salt and pepper. And without looking at me, she handed the salt and pepper to her husband to hand to me. Oh, yeah. So that's a very, because you're not really supposed to, um, you know, unless you're a shop owner and like you see the same women every day, like right. as a man, you're not really supposed to engage with women who aren't your spouse or your your family. Mm-hmm. So that, that was really interesting. It sometimes, you know, I wasn't there for very long. And sometimes you would sort of, I would sometimes feel the sadness of like, you just don't have the sort of casual and inter- chatty interaction with women or with members of the opposite. And like, let's not even, you know, gender and non-binary. And I mean, that so much of the, so much of the mindset is still, never mind like you're a man or a woman, your purpose in life is to get married and have kids, Yeah. you know? Yeah. And I think Nabil feels that really strongly. Yes, you can see uh, that. This really suffocating pressure to, there is very little room in, traditional uh, Middle Eastern society to even be straight and not get married, you know, just to try to have your individual life. Or the idea of like living by yourself and doing your own thing until you're 30 or 35 or whatever is, I'm not saying it's unheard of, especially in a place like Beirut, but it's far less common than it is here. True. Yeah, definitely. And I really wanted to capture that in the book, just like how, how family is, you know, I really want to capture that on both sides, like how family is everything. Yes. For yeah. better or worse, like 
your families are thick as thieves and it's like both suffocating and <laughs> and sustaining at the same time when a big gorilla like the US comes in and literally like rips apart fam literally rips apart families it's devastating because like you know Iraq was a country where people didn't have a lot of a vast horizon of personal opportunity you know so family life is everything and like we destroyed that you yeah, know yeah we ruined people's lives yeah yeah something i noticed with uh in the book was bobby and bobby is the cousin of rita in the book the character rita and they are really close they've always been close yeah there's this conflict within rita about her family on the irish side right yeah yeah exactly her cousin on the irish side who he wanted to enlist in the army well and he voluntarily goes to joins the military and goes to iraq right, right? Yeah, and so you see there where Rita is definitely in disagreement with this decision. She is disgusted with it. She's upset, frustrated, all that. But at the same time, she is so loyal to Bobby and she loves him. And so you see that she's trying to figure out, navigate these feelings that she has, like family versus the bigger picture. Right, right. Yeah, and I thought that was really conveyed well. Um, since we brought up family and well i think her family is interesting because it's it's upper class on her father's side and it's working class on her mother's side uh -huh, and you know yeah. as we've seen in a country without a draft you know where everyone shares the load and shares the weight of the ma the massive decision of going to war that's more equal you know we've actually become this country where you know the military is primarily like a career path for you know low income or working class uh, Bobby doesn't really have, I think he's like going to maybe become a car mechanic, right? Like, yeah. And he gets really inflamed after 9-11. He's like, this is what I'm going to do. Like, I, I, so yeah, I really kind of wanted, it, with Rita, I think sort of capturing that almost dis disdain for like, why would anyone do that who didn't have to, you mm -hmm. know? You're, you're crazy. Like, why are you, why are you doing this, you know? And yeah. she's sort of like a postal elite. Yeah, and, Harvard um, grad. But, you know, they're both there. You know, I mean, they're both occupying the country in different ways. True, they know? both play a part. Because for her, because for her, I mean, it's a big, it's a big career opportunity to be posted there. Right. Yeah. In the book, it talks about how excited she is. Like she knows that this is a probably a bad thing what that's going to happen, but she's also excited for her own career. Right. Right. She's like, I'm gonna get a big break. Yeah. Exactly. Like as a journalist, she's like, well, I need to be in a war zone at least once to get any kind of credibility, any kind of respect. And so I thought that was very well conveyed. You know, the personal versus big picture. Yeah. And I think she. I mean, even me as a journalist. I mean, I've never really reported from a war zone, but even for me, okay. all these years as a journalist. Mm -hmm. dilemmas come up about you know are you on one hand it's like you're providing a, a testament you're providing documentation and you're documenting and you're witnessing and and then on the other hand there's a slightly vulture like quality to being a journalist so yeah, yeah like tell me about the worst day of your life right exactly exactly like you're actually sort of re I, I mean only in recent years have I I think do we have a word for it you know but like you're re-traumatizing people in a way and it's oh, very important uh -huh. for like you know stories of you know bad things to be told but 
you know, the flip side is it's really like you're asking, I guess, emotional labor of people who've been through things to like ask them. And even what she has to do, like literally in the middle, like moments after a bomb has decimated a neighborhood, like the fact that she has to talk and like pull quotes out of people who are like keening in grief, you yeah, know? Yeah, like right after the fact. It's a very, I really wanted to sort of capture that. You have to have a real um, steely spine as a journalist in a lot of ways yes. you know like you kind of have to put your misgivings in a moment like that aside and like get the story you know yeah yeah which isn't always easy right like one of my okay so my favorite character is mary joe and i think rita so rita is the daughter of mary joe who i'm obsessed with i love that you love mary joe is every why do you love mary joe so much she's just yeah she's just strong she has a dry sense of humor she is loving on top of all that but uh, I mean, she's loving underneath all that, I should say. But yeah, she just has this sarcasm to her. This she's very matter of fact, no nonsense, and yeah, I love the strength that she has. And also, I think Rita definitely the character Rita took a lot of those traits from her mom, and so I feel like Rita is really good at compartmentalizing in her head. This is my professional life. This is my personal life, and. I don't know, there's this thing she does, like one half of her brain is emotion, one half of her brain is logic, and you can see that. Right, right, right. For me, a lot of the book is about like, Rita for me is, she's a very real, I wrote her as a real character, and hopefully she she plays that way, and I was definitely, I was oh, definitely yeah, she totally that, does. There's a lot of me in her, and I was also thinking about other friends, like especially female journalist friends, you know. Um, okay. And the kind of that steeliness and like that discipline that you really have to build up. But also she's sort of like an allegory for me, you know, she's an allegory of America, you know, and it's sort of like, what will it, what will it take to, I guess, break through her myopia, you know, and have compassion for other people in other parts of the world, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't want to give spoilers, but you know, it's not until dot, dot, dot that I think kind of she kind of has that has a certain kind of like she really morphs yeah yeah um another thing that I think is worth mentioning she has this relationship um while she's she so okay sorry Rita lives in Beirut and she forms a relationship with someone oh with Sammy the 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 sheik the sheik Palestinian activist yeah exactly right and you can see, you know, she loves Sammy. She loves so many things about him. While at the same time, she is looking at her career and she's thinking, okay, I need to further myself. What's my priority here? And she has Sammy, who is, she gets a lot of love from. She gets emotional support. She gets so many things from that relationship. While at the same time, she has this wanderlust where she's like, okay, I need to move forward and even if that means sacrificing this relationship and you can see that conflict within her and I think a lot of people can relate to that kind of um, dilemma. I mean I think Sammy for her Sammy A is very attractive. Yeah. You know like she's very that helps. he's very sexy mm-hmm. and B he's like a house, he's like her house husband. Yeah. You know yeah. like he's sort of a layabout. Mhm. 
So, you know, she can she can go out and work hard and come home and he's made her dinner and he's taken care of the house and, you know, because he has nothing better to do. And yeah. I think she gets seduced into it. And I don't think she, I don't think she considers that uh, there could be another side to Sammy. I mean, I actually think I mean, I think with Sammy, what I was really trying to capture was that. You know, in my experience, in any country, often, like, the people who are kind of angriest about what is, like, being done to their people are the most privileged. Because yeah. you've kind of had the most time and education to think about it, you know, and to sort of frame your feelings about it. And, oh, okay. you know, Sammy, to me, is, like, a is like an on the upper end of, like, the Palestinian diaspora. And I think there's much more r rage there about things like colonialism than she realizes and... Yeah. She finds out later on, right? Yeah, yeah, there's this interaction. <laughs> there's this interaction where uh Sammy and Bobby, the cousin, um Rita's cousin meet and Bobby is like, "Oh my god, I'm going to join the army." And he's all excited and all that and and Sammy, right? Right. Yeah, like Sammy is not on board, you know, understandably. And that's where you start seeing, you know, this what sammy's feeling well he's kind of an asshole about it right he's like yeah, yeah. dude you should go for it <laughs> yeah yeah he's kind of trolling bobby because he knows that's what bobby wants to hear and like sammy right. doesn't want to spend the energy to you know argue but later he talks to rita and he's like oh my god this is absolutely you know, terrible. Right, and also thinks that, you know, they're going to virtuously go in and install democracy, like, yeah. among these barbarians, and everything's going to be great, and everyone's going to be so thankful, you exactly. know? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and at first, at the beginning of the book, you just see Sammy as this kind of um, passive... Yeah. Yeah, like, passive, happy-go-lucky, like, oh, I'm so happy to be in this relationship, and blah, blah. But yeah, you start seeing what is within him and what is constantly bubbling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because I mean, not to spoil, but I don't entirely, I don't entirely disagree with what he did. And I think I might yeah. do it myself, actually, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I think in some ways he was acting for the greater the greater purpose yeah you know i know i'm trying so not, not to spoil, spoil. Not to spoil. i'm trying really yeah. hard not to yeah. spoil but that's the part that that's the part involving the fate actually oh because yeah. oh. remember she's like i i think i'm forgetting i just forgot the name she says to him she's like i just want to be back with you with you like spooning fate into my mouth and... okay Okay, I just forgot the name of it. Do you guys ever have other authors on the show? Yeah, we've had um, Danny Ramadan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, amazing. And Salim Haddad, who wrote Guapa. Oh, yeah, I know Salim. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. So we've gotten to talk to some authors. This is kind of new territory for me because I've never got to actually talk to authors in a context like this. Um, and it's really nice to get to not only read a book, but get this kind of insider info from an author. And I don't know, this is just like one special aspect of the podcast. I'm, I'm always totally honored and, and so touched when anyone is interested in anything I've read. So I'm super grateful. <laughs> and I can't wait to uh, read Christodora. That's definitely on my upcoming reading list oh thank you yeah well it's very i mean it's different in terms of what it's about it's a much more um okay i think that even though there's a lot of like violence and correspondence um it's a much more rated g book like christadora yeah. is 
it's a very graphic novel when it comes to sex and drugs. Oh, yeah, okay. I think maybe. I think yeah, I think correspondence is good for a very wide age range. I think everyone would get something out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think I just tried to create characters. I think like with the first part of the book, I was trying. Have you guys like ever read like Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides? Yeah, yeah. I read that in college. Well, yeah, well, you remember how beautifully he kind of told that the story of the Greeks. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the, the Greeks, his, the Greek grandmother the coming guy. here and yeah. just the alienness of America, you know, America being this weird, sterile place when you're coming from this, like, very emotive, you know, uh-huh. kind of ethnic, almost like slight superstitious culture, you know, and then you move to the land of wasps and like Wonder Bread and, yeah. you know, air conditioning and all that. And yeah, professionalism. just individualism. And professionalism. Yeah, just... All this, like, isolation, individualism. Right, exactly, exactly. So in the first part of the book, I really wanted to sort of tap into, like, that traditional multi-generational family in America saga. And then and yeah, then I, I hoped that maybe that would, you know, by, by the point, by the time that people got to Iraq, like, they would be hooked in. But it's interesting, actually, that... You know, some readers, not a lot, some on um, Goodreads have said that they were, it didn't, the book didn't really take off for them until it got to Iraq. Oh, interesting. And that they found, I think what I was trying to do was, I wanted the book, you know, without giving spoilers, I wanted the book to come full circle. I wanted a lot of what happens at the end of the book to echo what happens at the beginning, like a hundred years before. Yeah, I loved the several generations that it spanned and the context that you gave. Yeah. I think it's really important. Yeah. And I also think, you know, I think it's also important to remember too, like in this moment that this is not the first time when we've brought down the, you know, brought down the gate, you know, to, to, uh, to newcomers. I mean, after a a massive surge of immigration from like 1880, there was, uh, we really brought the gate down in 1925 and, uh, you know, immigration all, so I just think it's important to remember that, you know, we have to keep, I mean, not to sound too didactic, but we have to keep fighting for that idea of yeah. the U.S. as a safe harbor, because there are times when this is not the first time that we've kind of betrayed that ideal. Yeah, you're right. It's history repeating itself in, with you know, different versions of history. And I also just think that, like, the the racial aspect is so interesting. You know, like Sicilians and, and Syrians and Greeks were not considered white. Yeah, true. When they first... Up until it was considered inconvenient for us to be considered non-white. Well, what happened was they, there was a lot of... in. I mean, at the, at, in the early 20th century, you had to be white to become a citizen. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So um, there was a lot of ambiguity around, like, what is a, what is a Syrian? Right. Mm-hmm. And so a Syrian guy in the South took it to court. Oh, and he right. was deemed and argued that he was white yeah. and he was ruled white. Yeah. So Arabs, I think particularly, you know, Arabs from like Syria, Lebanon, you know, have benefited in the U.S. have benefited from this kind of like basically blending in as white, you know. And now white, we have this white, new wave of immigrants who are from Latin America or South America or uh, from other parts of the, like Yemen, you know, that we're, you know, you just don't pass as white, right. you know, and, and I think we've been here before is what I'm saying. And I think we have to stay strong and, and hold to the ideal that like this is, a, you know, like a, a, a sanctuary for everyone. I mean, personally, I've 
I think if I were a, a refugee, I'd rather go to Toronto than I'd rather go to Canada than here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like we have ever said we we're going to Canada, right? Yeah, but I mean, we're talking about refugees. Right? Oh no, yeah. <laughs> but you know something? I don't know. I mean, yeah, exactly. Like with the way way that the U.S. is being very I've unwelcoming. I've been feeling pretty cynical about this myself. I feel like we don't have a voice anymore. Like any kind of protest we do, it's just not. It doesn't feel like anything's going to change. Sometimes, and well, I also think that you know the the political math of this country is very um, you know with the electoral college and with the extent to which you know Republicans have been able to take over states and take over state houses and really the electoral college. You know, so yeah, I mean, I I share your cynicism. It can really feel like I mean, I do a lot of activism. A lot of I mean, I do I join a protest almost every week. You know, against oh, wow. the camps and. Mm-hmm. you know, against the, the ICE raids. And um, there's a group here in New York, Rise and Resist. It's one of many groups that oh, cool. yeah. we do. A, we do a protest in, a, in like Grand Central Station nice. almost every week, you know, Ooh. just to maintain the public show of resistance to these policies. Oh, uh, yeah. And, you know, quite frankly, I don't I don't have any illusions that look at how much protest there has been in the U.S. in the past two years. Protest doesn't change things overnight. No, I think what it does is it keeps it's like a billboard. Mm -hmm. It's like a public billboard that keeps saying, you know, a whole bunch of us are against this. Yeah. And that's really, really important. Yeah, it builds up and it really is all worth it. Like it does build up. Yeah, because ultimately it draw it does drive lawmakers and it drives elections. And, you know, I don't think that we would, you know, I don't even think that we would see the squad, you know, the squad right now, you know, AOC. Yes. True. If uh, yeah, I mean, there's a ground, there's a kind of groundswell calling for new faces and like a more expansive idea of justice in our government. So, yeah, and I mean, at least these protests might change the minds of some voters, at the very least. Yeah, I just think it's tough because the voting math is very, it's, it's skewed. Yeah, it's messed. Up. I was just reading the other day that Trump could lose the popular vote by five million votes instead of three and still win. Oh, that's terrifying. Because of the electoral call. I mean, it's, yeah. And that's, and then you really feel as though, you know, when the popular vote is so, when the margin is so wide, like then you really feel like the popular will is being thwarted. But I mean, that's the, quite frankly, that's the reason why people like us, we shouldn't be moving from one big city to another. We should be moving to like Iowa and Montana and, uh, you know, the places where our votes are really needed. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm in Texas, but hey, it's good we're in Texas. But we're also um, in this blue bubble. Right, right. Well, the whole the whole country is like an urban-rural split, right? Yeah, I mean, that's you true. Have, I mean, you have some of the most progressive, you know, some of the, the, the greatest hotbeds of, like, millennial, progressive, whatever, in... Atlanta and Austin and New Orleans and yeah. in these in these cities in these incredibly red, red states, states yeah. you know it's just it's just that when we concentrate our votes in certain places they don't count because of our weird system oh you know? yeah no it's tr- it's very tricky before we end this by the way I wanted to mention that one of my favorite authors Khaled Hosseini wrote a review of your book when I saw that I wanted to ask you yes I wanted to ask you what was your reaction when you saw that Khaled Hosseini uh, read your book and 
and wrote about it. I mean, that must have been an amazing moment for you. Oh, I was over the moon. Well, you know, he wrote it's a, it's a blurb, right? It's like when you reach out to... Yeah, yeah. Not a full yeah, review. It's yeah. when you reach out to authors and say, you know, would you please, 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 I know how busy you are. Would you please, please, please read this? And then if you like it, would you please write a nice line or two about it? Okay, So yeah. my agent actually got it, knows his agent or how to connect to him or something. And, um, oh, that's awesome. Uh, we know it got to him, but we just assumed, you know, it's rare, quite frankly, when any author actually finds the time to do that you know to read something and then to write something about it uh yeah. so I didn't think that he would you know I was like oh that's great you got it to him you know thanks and yeah. and so I was we were just flabbergasted you know because it was such a lovely incredible and um I was so excited. I was yeah delighted by that delighted yeah. by that so I'm so excited to see that yeah I was honored I was deeply honored you I know? bet I mean, yeah he's one of my yeah, I mean, there were so many reasons I wanted to read your book when I yeah. learned about it. And then to top it off, I was like, oh, my God, Khaled Husseini has read yeah, I know. and has like written about it. I know. I was, yeah. uh, I was really, I was really touched by that. And really, yeah. you know, I sent, I sent his, I sent along like a very, you know, effusive thank you Aww. through his team. And so, yeah, hopefully, um. Yeah. Like so when if, how long have you guys been doing the podcast? Um, it's been a little over a year, like a year and a few months, and it's turned out to be incredible. We've gotten to talk to amazing people like you. Um, I love what this podcast has become. How I love we... that it basically makes us sit down and talk to people who are really cool, like once a week minimum. Yeah, talk. I love that you guys are doing it. I mean, I also love that there's like a queer Arab movement. For me, at least personally, it's felt very sudden within the past couple years. And I don't know if that's just me or a bigger thing. It's not just you. I mean, I, I kind of blame assimilation fatigue, you know? How do you mean? Okay, so like I'm tra visibly trans, I'm visibly Arab, and like I can't always blend in. I can't pass as your, I can't pass as a straight white person. I can't, and I feel like this is also sort of like a thing my family tried to do for so long. We tried to pass as white Americans. We tried to mm -hmm. assimilate, and so now it's like here I am. I can't assimilate, and I feel like we've been pushed so hard to assimilate for so long, and. Now there's pushback. There's pushback against people like me. There's pushback against us being here at all now. You know, it's stronger than ever. Mm -hmm. So, like, I'm bi and trans, and it's kind of hard to hide the trans part sometimes, but I also feel like I really need to talk about the Arab stuff, too, because it's all intersectional like that. Right. I think one thing I was trying to do with the book was sort of draw a line from, like, you know, the Arab Americans of our grandparents' generation or whatever to the present and to say that, like, this is a... I mean, I know it sounds like a little cliche, but, like, you know, we just have this tradition of, like, people coming here, you know? And, okay, like, in New York, like, all the delis are owned by Yemenis. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. Um, when, I, when I speak Arabic... It's with them, you know, like I, I practice with them. Oh, that's awesome. And, and I think about my own grandfather who came here and opened a clothing store. And I just love that. You know, I actually think that's what, I think I, think I said it in the acknowledgments, like at the end of the book. And this doesn't apply just to Arabs, obviously, either. It's just from people coming from all quarters of the world. I mean, that is truly what, if there really is something that makes America great, it's that. 
This is the most cosmopolitan country in the world. I mean, you guys live in Houston. Yeah. I mean, Houston is like a, it's like Queens where I live. It's a, you know, and yeah, what, so true. A, what a privilege it is. to be able, you know, most people live just among their own people. What a privilege. To, I mean, that is the, it is the coolest thing about the United States and it's worth fighting for. Yeah, it is. Definitely at an inflection point, I think, demographically, where we're very, uh, in an almost violent way, well, no, sometimes actually violent way, like pulling, it's like a tug of war between two ideas, right, of what the country should be. But I think we know what the country is. Like, you can't live in Houston without knowing, you know, really what the tradition is here and so I think it's worth fighting for and I was thinking about that a lot yes. when I when I wrote the book you know I was feeling very emotional about and I also like not to spoil but like to me the ending is like I guess I think you said like I kind of want to try a bittersweet ending you know I don't think it's an entirely a happy ending you know no and that's life that's reality yeah yeah right but I also really wanted it to end, I wanted it to end on this I mean for me like resilience was a big theme with the book you know, yeah. this, I'm fascinated by how families and people are, my God, I mean, just look at what's happening with like kids in the, in the camps right now. I'm fascinated by how people undergo tremendous displacement and get torn away from their roots. And, and in this case, literally from their parents, you know, and still, mm-hmm. and how trauma and resilience coexist, right? I really try to sh- people still survive. Yeah, I really tried to show that at the end and I really wanted the book to end on this note of like, okay, well this is where life has I'm brought just, me to this point. I'm just going to I'm just going to stay in the I'm going to stay in the struggle. You know. And I like I, the very end where it's like I won't I won't spoil it, but it's a very slice of life. Yeah, yeah, I uh-huh. and I actually went back to I went back to I went to San Diego twice for the book. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, the first time I went was I was spending the winter in LA, and I had just started writing it, and um, I was curious. I was like, "Where is the Where are the Iraqi communities in Southern California?" So I started googling, and I found out that the second largest Iraqi community in the U.S. outside of the uh, the Dearborn area is right. which as we all know is kind of like the number one arab enclave in the country in the country yeah. um was in this little town outside of san diego called el cajon there's oh. a huge it's little it's little baghdad oh, so wow. i emailed you know being a journal you know doing this is a i do this all the time anyway i just cold emailed a lady who an Iraqi lady who runs a nonprofit there. Her name is Dilkwaz Ahmed, and she runs a nonprofit called License to Freedom. Oh. And I said, you know, if I paid you, could I come? And would you would you pull together some people for me to talk to? And wow. I mean, this woman is is so lovely. I mean, she's saint. You know, she's yeah. Dilkwaz to me. And she did, and she gathered about eight you know Iraqis and she translated and we spent a few hours together and it was very moving it was really moving and it was it was dis it was disarming and to me because some of them cried you know and again it gets back to that like it gets back to that like oh god like am I restirring the pot you know but she told me later that a lot of them said wow you know we've never had that opportunity to just talk about it and so then I felt better it sounds like yeah and at least this was a a situation where they volunteer, yeah. they were voluntarily speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she asked them, and 
yeah. And then um, and then I went back, and it was lovely. And then we stayed in touch. And then I went back before I wrote the final chapters of the book. I went back mm. for a few days, and she hooked me up with a mother and daughter who I just hired for the day to like walk around with me and talk with people. Oh wow, that's um, cool. And uh, and I went to her place for lunch and met her kids, and you know Aww. I talk about her and acknowledgments and. I forget why I brought this all up in the first place. Anyway, <laughs> oh, why did I bring this up? Because San Diego. The- oh, right, the end of the book, the end of the yeah. book. So I went back, you know, right before I wrote the final two chapters, I went back. And then I came back to me and wrote them. I wrote them in like two days. Whoa. Yeah, like I really wanted like the whole, I really wanted the... Um, like the freshness. I really wanted the whole setting for the final two chapters to be like super vivid in my head. Yeah, and you can tell. So, like... The imagery is really detailed. I wanted it to be very, I try to write in a very like cinematic way. Mm, okay, that explains like, a lot. I, yeah. People are always like, how do you organize, you know, how do you figure out what to write? And I was like, I sort of think of it, it is all, it's all cameras, you know? Oh, cool, I like, like that. Does, does the chapter start on a close up or does the chapter start like a master shot and then you pull in and who's pointed, who are you following? Um, it was a very immersive experience reading this book. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah, a good book should be, right? Yeah, and this definitely Have did. Have you guys re- read anything else recently that you really like? I liked, I mean, one recent thing was Guapa by Salim Haddad. Mm, it's Guapa's great, isn't it? Oh my it? god. Yeah. I, love the, I love the Tate, I love Teta, the grandmother. Yes, she is yeah, so badass. <laughs> she is. Yeah. yeah, and like, she's so, um, she she loves so aggressively and yeah she's just badass yeah i think he really conveyed the like the ferociousness of like an arab grandma yeah totally (laughs) like she loved her grandson but in like that's familiar right uh uh-huh in a very harsh (laughs) way that she loved that she loved her grandson I don't think this is very relevant to the discussion, but I was reading uh, Tentacle by Rita Indiana. It's this dark cyberpunk thing. So um, at the end of our episode with Salim Haddad, he's the one who recommended that book to you. So I think it's pretty relevant. Oh, yeah. yeah, right. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. And after that, I've been reading season nine onward of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's basically after the end of the comics, but that's kind of like tangential at this point. It, it works. Well, yeah, but it all connects in some way. Yeah, it does. I'm, I'm reading right now, I'm reading this book. I'm not sure if it's technically a novel or a memoir. It's called The End of Eddie. And it's okay. about, it's, it's by a French gay guy who grew up in an extremely poor, rough part in the north of France. I mean, it's almost like he grew up in the French version of Appalachia. Whoa. Uh, but, but gay, you know. Yeah. So it's quite... <laughs> Not um, easy. It's quite intense. I'll have to read that. Yeah, I read that. And then also I read uh, on the on the even queerer side, there's a great novel called Sketch to See. Have you guys heard about that? No. Nope. no it's by yet. Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. Okay. And it's about being young and queer and gender, you know, gender blurred in queer. Boston in the 90s. And oh. it's all like clubs nice. and drugs and music and, and it's amazing. It, talk about immersive. It's a very, like you kind of feel like you're out, out with them on a trip. It sounds a lot like High Fidelity. What's that? Uh, it's just like set in the late early, early 90s like scene description of Houston. It's this novel. Oh, who's that by? I have no idea. I stole it from my brother and... Oh. <laughs> yeah. Ah, okay, oh. okay. 
I also recently read Fascism by Madeleine Albright. We saw her when she was in town and got copies of that book, and I read oh, it. Oh, yeah, that was good. Yeah, it was super depressing, though, you know? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah I mean, hey, Trump gets elected, and we're talking about Nazis. Yep. Listen, after after Trump was elected, I listened to talk about depressing, talk about, like, perversely, almost masochistically depressing. I listened to... Um, the audio of Ascent, which is the story of the rise of Hitler between like 1933 and, and the end. Oh, God. Not the end. It actually goes until about the start of, I think, when the U.S. enters the war in 41. Oh, okay. Because it's like I really wanted to, I wanted to understand how it all happened bit by bit. And yeah. it's quite, and I have to say, I mean, obviously, you know, governmentally and societally, Germany in the 30s and the, and the U.S. now are two very different places. But, you know, often when Haunting. something happens, like when when they take it to a new level, like this, you know, this abuse of, of children, children in the camps mm-hmm. and stuff like that, like it's a really creepy. It's like, oh, this is how you do it. You pluck the chicken one feather at a time, you know, yeah. so yeah. people become desensitized to cruelty, <sighs> to scapegoating and dehumanizing certain groups of people. And totally. It's important to stay vigilant in this time. It is. I'm also reading, tra- rereading Transmetropolitan by Warren Ellis. It's this dark cyberpunk dystopian future, you know, with a bowel disruptor. Oh, wow. So basically covering the presidential election at the time where you've got your Democrat and your Republican who are named the Smiler and the Beast, the Beast being the Republican. And Hunter S. Thompson covers the election and causes trouble and eventually decides to sit down and interview the beast and then shoots him with a bowel disruptor. What? So, what? Uh, you can imagine it, it's exactly what it sounds mm-hmm. like. Yeah, I, I was really happy to see the bowel disruptor in action. Oh, yes, yes. I can, oh, don't even get me started. I can, I'm already fantasizing in my head how I use that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Thank you. This was such an honor. Um, where can people follow you, find you? They can find me on, well, I'm old school for one thing, so I do have a public Facebook page. It's just Fancy. Tim Murphy, and then I'm pretty easy to find. It's the little like black and white picture. I'm on Instagram. Wait a second. I'm so, hold on. I have to check the name Isn't of it my... Isn't like Tim Murphy NYC or something like that? Yeah, right. They're all very similar. Okay. Yeah, Tim, Tim Murphy NYC writer, cool. right, and which is also my website as well. It's just timmurphynycwriter.com. Perfect. Yeah. So, you know, I would really just, um, for anyone listening, if you read the book, if, you, if, you, if it moves you, uh, please post about it, you know, on whatever you're on or tell people or put a review on um, Goodreads because, you know, it's not getting as much kind of mainstream media attention as I'd like. I think maybe because they're like, what's this book about the Middle East written by a dude named Tim Murphy, a white dude named Tim Murphy, you know? I mean, my name doesn't really reflect my background. Anyone who is moved by it or if anything you can do to help lift it up and get the word out, I'll appreciate so much. And drop me a line. Please tell me what you thought about it. Yeah. I love love talking to readers. So how can people find you on Grindr? Scruff. Scruff, girl. Scruff. (laughs) (laughs) Not Grindr? Grinders for basics. It's for gay six. Thank you. 
Thank you all so much for listening. You can find us on thequeerarabs.com. We are also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at thequeerarabs. And you can email us at thequeerarabs at gmail.com. Or you can email Ahmed, who does the Arabic side of the podcast, at thequeerarabsinarabic at gmail.com. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes. That will make this podcast more accessible to everyone. Thanks, y'all.